Hello friends, I hope you're feeling well and taking some extra precautions to keep yourself and your loved ones very safe. The uncertainty around the coronavirus is more than a little unsettling. I am fully nestled in with my husband Joel and our kids for an extended period of precautionary social distancing. And I am grateful that we are well. It is for sure a bit of an inconvenience for the sake of keeping others safe, but it's a small price to pay. For so many, this will be a very disruptive, scary, and potentially life-threatening time. And I'm keeping all who are suffering in my thoughts and prayers, and I hope that you'll do the same. This week's conversation is not focused on the coronavirus, and hopefully it will provide you with a bit of a distraction. It's a very special conversation that I recorded with Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chow just before all of the social distancing measures were put in place. Secretary Chow came to the United States as an eight-year-old she likely could never have imagined all of the opportunities that this country would hold for her and her family when she crossed the ocean, bound for this new life. She also couldn't have foreseen how the adversity and the struggles that she and her family faced would shape her and would give her the strength and the skills that have been essential to every role that she's ever held. Her resume is nothing short of extraordinary. The first woman of Asian American descent to hold a cabinet position as Secretary of Labor, service in four separate presidential administrations, leadership at the highest levels of the United Way and the Peace Corps, a degree in economics, a Harvard MBA, and 36 honorary degrees. Today, as I said, she is the Secretary of Transportation. My conversation with Secretary Chow is wide ranging and it illustrates what is, I believe, a very different dimension of how we think about accomplishment and success. For her, it's about respect. Respect for her family and for the country that has given her so much. Here's our conversation recorded at the Department of Transportation in Washington, D.C. on March the 11th. Secretary Chow, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thanks for having me. I am so delighted to be here with oh, you. Oh, I am too. Just so thrilled and honored. Thank you. To have this opportunity. Well, you're very nice to take the time. You have and a truly incredible resume. And I know you're very modest about your accomplishments, but it is incredibly impressive. And when you, you combine- know, it doesn't seem like <laughs> to me. Okay, we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about that. But when you combine your resume with your personal story, it is a really, it's a really inspiring story. I would love for you to talk a little bit about some of those formative threads that really contributed to your success and how your upbringing and coming to this country as an eight-year-old, how that shaped the way you lead, the kind of leader that you are. You know, I don't think I'm a success. I just have tried to do the best I can in whatever opportunity I was given. I was always very grateful to whoever gave me the opportunity that I never wanted to disappoint them. I wanted them to be proud of me and to feel that they've made a good decision and given me that opportunity. Having said that, I have, a, I have a different perspective, I think, than most people because I am an immigrant to this country. I came when I was eight years old. I didn't speak English. My family uh, had a very difficult time, like most immigrants when they first came to America. I think what impressed me then was the importance of family, the importance of setting goals, and the importance of having love, you know, love of your family, love of your country, um, that was very important. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about some of those early struggles and challenges. You didn't speak the language. Your mom didn't speak the language. You, I was her interpreter. You were her interpreter. You were the oldest at the time of three, right? She had a baby and you yeah. were eight years old. So I, I love the story uh, because it's part of who I am. My parents have a wonderfully 
inspiring and touching love story. My father came from a small farming village of 10 families outside of Shanghai. My mother came from a wealthy, prominent, land-owning family in Anhui province, which is to the west. Two young people of such different socioeconomic backgrounds would never have been able to meet under ordinary circumstances. It was only because of the turmoil of the times, the civil war that was raging in, in China at the time, that my mother's family fled to Shanghai in search of safety and security, and she entered my father's high school and were introduced through mutual friends. So my father has always said, in turmoil, in crisis, there are always opportunities. And they had a very chaste uh, relationship because they were so young. And then in May of 1949, at the culmination of the Chinese Civil War, each made their way to uh, Taiwan. My father looked for my mother for three years, finally found her, they got married, and my mother had to persuade her parents to let her marry a young man whose background was so unknown to my grandparents. And probably in her only act of defiance, she said that she thought this young man had potential and that she wanted to help him. And so they got married. My father became one of the youngest sea captains of the time at the age of 29. And life was difficult because he was often away at sea. And so they decided to try a different occupation. And because my father was so young in being the captain, they thought they had a number of years that they can try different pursuits. And if things didn't work out, he can always return to being a sea captain again. So he took a national examination. It only comes once a year. He scored number one, broke all the records. And because of his achievement, uh, which is, you know, these are grades that are posted nationally, he was able to have the opportunity to study abroad. And where do you think he wanted to go? For a couple who's never really met white people, who's never been outside of um, you know, China and Taiwan, they knew about America. This was what year? 1958. Okay. So my father had a chance to go uh, and study. He wanted to go to America. They both did. And upon basically two weeks notice, he packed up and he left for America. My mother was seven months pregnant with their third child. You're the oldest. I'm the oldest. There was one number two and number three was not yet born. And it was an incredibly courageous move because many families were separated by not years even, but by decades. Mm. So it was an act of faith that they would somehow be reunited. We would be reunited as a family. And it took my father three years before he was able to bring my mother my two sisters and me to America. Do you remember being separated from your dad during that period? Oh, very much so. And what was that, how did you think about that as a child? You were a little girl. I was five years old when he went to America. I don't remember that as much. I do remember when three years later, my mother was very excited because we had received word from my father that we would be able to go to America. I still remember the overnight train ride from Taipei to Kaohsiung which is a city located at the southern tip of the island of Taiwan. And then from there, we boarded a cargo ship, went up to Tokyo Bay, and then we went across the Pacific, went to Los Angeles, where that was the first time I've set a foot on American soil. There's a wonderful picture of my mother, my two sisters, and me beside a huge sign that says Port of Los Angeles, and that was our first port of entry in the United States. Then we got back on the ship, went down Baja, California, went through the Panama Canal, through the Gulf of Mexico, up the East Coast, and landed in New York 37 days later. Wow. So you had really not been around Americans. You had not been around people that didn't look like you. What was that like as a child? Yeah, I think the most, what I've learned, the most important thing was that if a child is loved and feels secure, it didn't really matter 
what the outside influences were and the environment. I was, by today's terms, I was bullied. Yeah. You know, people, kids were mean. So you started and, school, you tell a great story about starting school yes. and the big cultural differences between how you had been taught to show respect to your teacher and how young children in America were yes. taught to show respect to the teacher. Tell me that story. So my father took some time off from work, which is a big deal, and uh, accompanied me to school. So I greeted, uh, I saw my classmates coming in to the classroom in two by twos, in a column of two by twos, and the teacher was at the head of the column. And so, like any little self-respecting Chinese girl, uh, you, I bowed from the waist. And the, the depth, the, the, uh, the deeper the bow, the more respect there is. And so the teacher is the most respected person in Chinese society. So I bowed very deeply from the waist, at which point, my classmates just broke out in complete laughter. So it was a very embarrassing moment. <laughs> and then there was a young boy whose name was Eli. And I, they would do a roll, you know, a roll call. And I could not distinguish Elaine versus Eli. And so when he was called, I would get up once again to the utter like laughter <laughs> of the whole class. One thing that I that I had not realized, but as I was as I was doing preparation for the interview, your name Elaine was not the name that you had been called for the first eight years of your life. So no, absolutely Elaine not. Elaine was a new name for yes. you that you were trying to get accustomed to. It was actually given to me by by a pastor that my father knew, and they thought that Elaine sounded like my Chinese name, mm -hmm. and. What was your Chinese name, or what is your it's Chinese It's actually Xiaolan, which means uh, the colloquial is like little orchid. Or a more sophisticated interpretation is elegance and grace. Oh, that's beautiful. But I am like little orchid. This is very relevant now because there's a film called Mulan. Uh -huh. My mother's name is Mulan. So I am her daughter. So I am Xiaolan, which means little orchid. Because oh. Mulan means orchid. Interesting. Yes. Um, it's fair to say there were a lot of cultural differences, a lot of challenges. That could have been devastating for lots of people to constantly encounter this adversity. How do you think this shaped your story and your trajectory? You know, I don't think it affects you too much. If, Like most Asian American families, we're very, very uh, insular, close. Sticking together as Sticking a together. My parents never liked me going for after-school activities. Uh, the Asian-American household is much more geared toward family time together. So when the kids, the only thing they really emphasize is studying. This is when I was growing up. They're a little better now. But uh, as soon as you get home from, as you finish school, you come home. You don't deal, you don't like interact with other kids and, and do all that kind of stuff. I mean, I had kids who came home, you know, to my house after school and I would go to their house, but it wasn't like, um, it was under, very close adult supervision. Yeah. So what, I mean, it, it hurt to be bullied and to have other kids be mean to me, but it didn't really impact me because I knew my place in life. I was very secure in the love and security that my father and mother offered. So these other people, it didn't matter. Yeah. Also, we had hope. So we knew that the current adverse situation, the difficulties we were facing, we're not going to be forever because we were going to be okay because we were going to face much better times. Yeah. Where did that hope come from? I understand that your father was a person of deep faith. My mother is as well. My mother actually brought, my mother was among the very few women of her generation because she came from a wealthy family to receive an education. So she actually received uh, education from a missionary. She went to boarding school and she received it received education, an education from uh, American missionaries. So she actually knew English, she knew how to write. In fact, this is a really cute thing that I've actually only learned myself recently. She and my father, in an effort to elude adult supervision, actually communicated to each other in the language of love, which to them meant English. Oh, yeah, sweet. It's very sweet. <laughs> That's really lovely. Thinking back on their relationship, how did that shape you? I mean, it gave you great confidence as a child, you felt very loved, 
you felt part of this close family, but thinking about you know your own relationship later. Yeah, I think their relationship was very inspirational to my sisters and me. Uh, they were an example of what true love is all about, helping and supporting one another, sacrificing, you know, working together on a common goal. These are just wonderful life lessons, which they never told us in words, but which we observed every day. Okay, you're one of six girls, ultimately. Yes. You, you had three other sisters who were born once you all came to America. And I think you, it showed that you know, our life was getting better. So yeah. my parents had confidence to start you know, having children. A big family. Was, yeah, it was yeah. a wonderful statement about America. Absolutely. You're the eldest of those yes. six girls. Was there pressure on you as the eldest? You know, I never thought there was pressure. I just felt that, no, I never, I mean, all this pressure, I mean, you know, I don't put very much store on that. I felt an obligation, uh -huh. a responsibility. It's different than pressure. It's different than pressure. I felt an obligation and a responsibility to help my parents in whatever they were doing, mm -hmm. in being a good child, and also in taking care of my sisters. So my duty as the first daughter is to be a good daughter to my parents and then to be a good example to my sisters of being a good daughter to my parents and to take care of my sisters. Do you equate that with achievement? For those you two know, achievements, no, achieve you know, now? people will probably think that it's all about achievement, but I actually didn't set out to do all this stuff for achievement's sake. I think people would be very surprised by that. No, it's how boring <laughs> to focus on yourself. I think that, you know, one of the true truths or, or joys of life is to think about others. You do it because you love other people, you want to help other people. That's what brings you true happiness. So in everything that I've done, I've actually not done it for myself. I've done it to bring honor to my parents, to my family, to my community, and to help lift them up so that they can have more opportunities in mainstream America. A great segue into this topic. Much of your career has been spent in public service and in serving others, but you didn't start there exactly, right? You started in banking. You studied economics. You got an MBA from Harvard, started out in banking, worked your way up, but then ultimately got this great opportunity. So talk about the appeal of going into public service. I mean, I majored in economics because I had to make a living. Yeah. I wasn't one of those people who thought that I can somehow coast or that I could just rely on my parents. My responsibility was to be financially independent, to help alleviate the financial burden on my family and also to help my younger sisters. So I had to find a job. In fact, I make a joke. I said, you know, one of my goals when I was graduating was that I gotta find a job and I gotta get my own apartment. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> but so I wasn't totally, uh, you know, a saint. I mean, I, you know, I, I was a little bit of a rebel from that point of view, but um, I was a banker because my family was in the private sector. So when I was growing up, the only opportunities I thought that were possible were in the private sector. That meant, you know, I studied economics so I can get a job, so I can get a, a good uh, job in the private sector. I never understood about opportunities in the nonprofit sector nor the public sector. It wasn't until much later that I realized that this country had so many opportunities and there were so many different ways, um, you know, to find one's place. Where did that public service spark start? Oh, yeah, yeah. You, uh, well, I'm an immigrant, and I've never been outside of New York at the time when I was growing up. So I give I credit my parents with imbuing within all their daughters a tremendous sense of possibilities, and it's especially poignant if you consider that my parents did not know what opportunities would be available in this new country. But because they were so cloistered in their own community, but they had confidence that this country would offer great opportunities for their daughters. So they always encouraged us to think 
broadly think outside of our little community of immigrants and to try to understand the larger world that's out there. And so we were always encouraged to, you know, to think outside the box, to explore in a responsible way. So I didn't understand, I didn't understand the government. I didn't understand this country. And I didn't understand democracy. And I didn't understand how things worked here. Because in Asian culture, there's always somebody in charge. When Even today, I have Asian immigrants who will come and talk to me and they'll say, okay, you know, you're now the establishment, although I don't think I am. There's a, you can tell me who's in charge. And then I would tell them, there's nobody in charge. This is America. No one's in charge. And they, they could not understand that. For a long time, I couldn't understand that. And then I would also, I, I was a banker at Citicorp. If I ever did a deal, it would take four people and be concluded in two hours. It would be me, the banker, the borrower, his, and it was mostly he, his lawyer, my lawyer. Four people, it would take an hour to two hours to finish the deal. That was it. I happen to have also gotten involved in some government financing. It's called Title XI mm -hmm. financing for the U.S. maritime industry, which would prove later on to be very helpful. If I ever did a government loan, it would take like three months to close. The government would have 35 lawyers on their side when I would only have my one lawyer. The documentation would fill a whole room. And I just could not understand. I said, how do people work like this? So I wanted to learn about government. And I yeah. wanted to learn about democracy. How does, what makes America tick? Why is it that we have the wonderful country that we have? And so that led me to applying for the White House Fellowship. And from there, your career kind of took off in public service. Yes, it did. And I, it wasn't because I was planning it. I think people are watching all the time, looking for talent. If you do a good job, you don't have to brag too much about it. People, they notice. The people who are important, they notice. I'm constantly looking for talent. And I notice who's doing real work and who's not, who's really hardworking, you know, who's really smart, who really is enthusiastic, energetic, resourceful. I'm watching them all the time. Mm -hmm. What's your advice for somebody who wants to really illustrate to a boss, maybe to you, that they are ready for that next step? They're trying to figure out how to create their own leadership journey. What's your advice for that young person who's jumping into it? Do what's asked of you with alacrity, enthusiasm, diligence, and resourcefulness. If you do a good job, people notice. Now, after a while, there are unfair people in this world, and I certainly acknowledge that. And if, you know, if your listeners feel as if they're not being respected and paid attention to, mm -hmm. this is a free country. Have the courage to look for something else. Yeah. And with, in this country, with the unemployment rate at 3.5%, which is pretty much full employment, there are lots of opportunities available. And the average American has about 10 jobs by the time they're 40 years old. So we are a country that has a lot of people who are moving on to new jobs, new opportunities. It's unlike Europe. Mm -hmm. Europe is different. They, have, they emphasize security. What that means is then that there's very little job turnover and the opportunities are not as plentiful as they are in this country. One of the other things that's really unique about your resume sort of touches on this concept that I think was coined by Professor Joseph Nye, who's at Harvard's Kennedy oh, yes, School of Government, course. right? Sure. Trisector athlete is what he calls it, which is essentially somebody who's worked across sectors from the public, the private, to the nonprofit sectors. You've done that. Talk about what benefit having that diversity of experiences gave you in terms of your own leadership journey. I think every sector is different and every organization is different. And because I've had the opportunity to enter so many different organizations, I have learned to respect the culture. And the culture is the unwritten rules that govern how people act, how they relate to one another in a particular organization. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the soul of an organization. There is something called the soul, S-O-U-L, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Every organization has a soul, and they have traditions, unwritten rules, uh, core values, 
that characterize what they value and what is wise not to step on without knowing. And if you're going to be a change agent, you want to bring change, you must understand the culture, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, what you can tackle in the short term, what you need to tackle in the long term, what you need to do to lay the, pr the predicate and the case for going forward. Yeah. So that's been extraordinarily helpful to me. You've really deployed that knowledge in, I mean, in so many different ways, including at the Department of Labor, where you were fearless in taking on something that had been untouchable for a long time, which was the Fair Labor Standards Act. And you fearlessly tackled this. Was that sort of the way that you thought about how to tackle that and how to get buy-in and how to work across the aisle? Was that informed by that diversity of experiences that you'd had? Absolutely. And also, I had a great team. So it's not a singular effort that makes it successful. It's a team effort. And I don't really care who gets a credit. I'm constantly throwing bouquets of flattery and compliments to people because I want them to feel that it is their mission. And when people feel that way, there's so much more enthusiasm, energy, and buy-in toward working toward a goal. What I found out is that people want to do something meaningful. And in fact, when the going gets tough, people actually get energized because we know, we knew that it was a worthwhile mission, that we were making a real difference, and the difficulty of the challenge actually brought the team together yeah. even more. You've had amazing accomplishments, but you said at the beginning, you don't feel particularly successful or you don't really think about your life that no, way. No, I don't. So I think this is so important <laughs> because life is a journey. Yeah. I never feel as if I'm successful. That's not the goal. But how do you feel about your accomplishments? Like you have a, I mean, your resume. My accomplishments are, are nothing. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, you know, think of, I think about all these other people. I'm really into K-drama these days. And I just think it's so amazing how talented these actors are, how skillful they are in showing the range of emotions across their face, in their faces, you know, I mean, that's one example. Or I may go to a concert or I may go to, a ballet and I see all these artists who are so talented. I mean, I think that's really, you know, really impressive. So I don't think you can be too happy chalking up your accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And at the end of one's life, I think the most important things are the you know, love of those who you care about, your reputation, and the respect of your peers, mm -hmm. and a feeling as to how you've made a difference. That's different than accomplishments. Yeah. It's much more, how much have you contributed versus how much can I, you know, uh, how, how much can I record as to what I've done? Yeah. And I'll tell you, coming as I did, stepping down as I did from Secretary of Labor, I have all these wonderful pictures, and they are meaningful, but after a while, they fade with time. Mm. I don't want to sound pessimistic or no, a, a you downer. Don't. You no, know, you it's don't like, sound like a downer at all. You don't sound like a look. I, I think it's so. I'm really, very forward-looking, and and I don't and I don't look toward achievements. In fact, um, in, in fact, as I get older and older, what I what I find you know most meaningful is how I'm able to use what authority response what authority I have to help others. There's a very special guy in your life who is a very prominent individual. I don't like to talk about people's <laughs> husbands, especially when I'm talking to a very accomplished, prominent woman such as yourself. However, you are married to the Senate Majority Leader, the wonderful Mitch McConnell. Um, you all are both in very high profile roles. You've been married for 30, almost 30 years? 25, 26. 20, 26 years, 26 years. It's a long time. You're both in high profile jobs. You're in a bit of a fishbowl. 27 years. Oh, no. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought it was close to 30. So, listen, <laughs> see, I did my homework. <laughs> okay. Um, but talk about how you make a dual career 
marriage work, especially when you're at such high, in such high profile jobs? Both of you are in incredibly high profile roles. How do you make that work in a place like Washington? I really respect Mitch on top of my love for him as well. I think he's incredibly competent, um, thoughtful, wise, calm, and steady. And I think he's a wonderful leader for our country. Um, so both of us are very fortunate in that we are able to have work that we both enjoy and find fulfillment. And we both have, um, you know, heavy schedules. But then the most important thing, I think, is to always make time for one another. He has a great track record of both keeping very senior women as part of his leadership team. In fact, I think his leadership team is dominated by women and has been for a really long time. Do you think you've had an impact on how he thinks about talent in his office? I don't think so. No? <laughs> he was always supportive of women. He has three daughters and um, he looks for talent. I actually learn a lot about leadership from him. He is a very steady, uh, very calm presence and he draws the best talents to him. He trusts uh, people, his people. He gives them a lot of uh, leeway. And he is very open to taking advice, regardless as to the age of that staffer. Or, you know, he just, he has, he has very young staffers uh, who he has the confidence to listen to. And they've always steered him very, very well. He's also a very low-maintenance husband. So he does his own laundry, he cooks, and he's actually a very thoughtful, very considerate person to live with, which is very nice. Yeah. You know, a lot of our listeners are just beginning to start their journeys. They're just launching careers, many of them. Not all of them. We really have a range of listeners that range from 18 all the way to 65 or 70, maybe beyond. It's really great. But an awful lot of our listeners are just launching their journeys. What advice do you have for them in terms of building leadership skills early on? I believe that leaders are developed and trained. So I always encourage young people to take on leadership roles uh, as early as they can in all different ways and in low risk situations. When they start out young, you know, assuming a leadership position, not too much is at stake, it's okay. So if they make some mistakes, it's okay. Um, I'm a strong proponent of helping out in nonprofit organizations and taking on some leadership role there. I make a joke. I said, if you don't do that well, what are they going to do? Fire you? You're a volunteer. <laughs> but the, you know, the combination of skill sets that uh, can be learned in a nonprofit organization uh, is so uh, broad and uh, useful. Yeah. It's a great experience. Yeah. And also, you'll be helping people, too. Yeah, of course. As you look back on your career, were there, is there an experience or maybe a couple of experiences in which you really felt like you stretched and grew? Every time, every day. Way? Yeah? Absolutely. But anything in particular that was every like... job that <laughs> Every job that I have had, I wasn't 100% sure that I can do it. But I was propelled by curiosity, a desire to learn, and a wish to do good. And to is, have an impact. And is that how you overcame the self-doubt? Whatever self-doubt that you... That I have self-doubts to this day. Okay, but how, but how do you overcome <laughs> it? What, what, what's, your, what's your toolkit? How Put do you... your big girl pants on. <laughs> Just as don't Mar do it. <laughs> as Margaret Spellings, former Secretary of Education, used to say. She's from Texas. You know her. Yes, I do. I loved it. She would say, just put your big girl pants on. So a lot of times you're going to have to just swallow your fear and just go for it. Yeah. And... You know, it's that cusp where you're not quite sure you're going to be successful in what you've been told to do, but you want to try. Uh, that's really the the point that you want to be, because a lot of times you you can't become completely comfortable. Then it gets boring, right? And you can't be so audacious that you're just leaping off of a cliff and there's like no safe landing. So you kind of have to be self-aware too. But I have found that every single job I've had. 
I always had a little bit of doubt, sometimes a lot of doubt, like, uh, you know, like some of these larger beginning uh, leadership positions. But I knew that I wanted to try, also that I believed in the mission, and I wanted to help if I could. Yeah, really being focused on what you were there to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so when you have those experiences in which you just get knocked on your can, let's say. Well, fortunately, just... I haven't been knocked on my can, which is actually <laughs> that's, good. that's good. So why is that? Why is that? Because I prepare. Mm. I work really, really hard. And I love my work. So working hard and being prepared didn't seem like work because I was interested. Yeah. And I had this curiosity. I wanted to know the end of the question. You know, I wanted to find, I, w I would pursue the answer to its very, very last possibility. And then I would feel good. And then also if it began to be confusing, I would tell myself, I refuse to be confused until I understand what this is all about. So you just kind of discipline yourself. Yeah, okay, so, so give me perspective on this topic. It relates to what tends to be, not, it's not an absolute thing, but women do tend to be more prepared than men, to spend more time preparing, I should say. For some women, that can be, not always, but can be an excuse for not then putting themselves out there. Okay, well, I'm not quite ready. I'm not 100%. I can't run for office because I'm not quite ready to do that. Well, maybe I don't have 110% of the answers. How do you get the balance right between being prepared, an appropriate amount of pr preparation, versus preparing as a reason for not going for it? Well, I think a lot depends on the individual, but you will never be 100% prepared. And you need to do some preparation. I think it's a matter, see, I view it not as preparing for myself. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of respect. That if I have a meeting with somebody, it is respectful to them that I do my homework and understand at least like which ballpark they're talking about. You know, yeah. I get my analogies and idioms all mixed up too, but I think you understand. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a show of respect for them that I do my homework, that I know what their background is, what they want to talk about, and then we can engage in a higher level conversation right from the get-go, rather than my finding out where are they from, what do they want to come in and talk to me about. So I think it's a level of respect. And then beyond that, then, you know, um, it would be, it's a wonderful thing to be able to engage with other people and interact. And that's what the whole human interaction really is all about. Yeah, I love the descriptor of it being about respect. Absolutely. I, I love that. That's beautiful. And that's why I, when I go to different places, I am often met at the door uh, by people who are participating in that event. Mm -hmm. I don't know how other people deal with it, but I actually want to know who they are. I ask my advanced staff to tell me their names, what their titles are, and what their positions are. Because I remember when I was one of those little people who could not even get in the receiving line. I was like probably in the back there watching the, you know, the VIP arrive. What a thrill it was for me. And if the VIP ever even smiled in my direction, it would have made my day, if not week and month. So I think it's another show of respect, you know, that these people thought highly enough of me to want to line up and receive me when I entered their premise or their facility. I at least should know who they are, what they do, and give them the due respect. Yeah, it's beautiful. I was recently introduced to this term called zone of genius. It's essentially what you do well that comes to you naturally. You don't have what you do too. Oh, come on. <laughs> you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But I think it's such an interesting question. Someone asked well, me this. this. Is, yeah, go ahead. And, and, I, and I had to think about it. And she said, well, you should talk to people around you and ask them yes. what they think your zone of genius is. So maybe if we ask your staff or maybe we ask Leader McConnell, what do you think they would say your zone of genius is? That thing. That's a great way to put it. Because I think this is a cultural difference as well. To this day, I still have a lot of hesitancy in speaking about myself because that's not my culture. Yeah. The Asian culture is very self effacing, it's reserved, it is very modest. So you always give the credit to the other person. And you're have, also a woman. 
I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's maybe exactly. the combination the of those well. two things, don't you think? Yes, but then, you know, we, I can try to be like more bombastic, but that's not me. So I'm very secure in knowing who I am, and I wouldn't be comfortable being that way, too pushy or overt. Having said that, though, um, the way you phrased the question is very well done. So my staff tells me that my zone of excellence will be one, being able to spot talent. If I find the right people for the right jobs, my life is so much simpler. My quality of life increases. If I don't have the right people in the right jobs, my life is miserable. And I've been micromanaging with very suboptimal results. Second thing I think uh, someone just said to me, I have very high emotional intelligence. My job is to understand people. The ideas are important. But unless we implement them, they're for naught. And the policy is, relatively speaking, the easy part. It's the people. Persuading them to go in one direction, building consensus, and forging a path forward. That takes the active uh, participation and agreement of other people. That's hard. How much does ethnicity for you play into that? this sort of getting buy-in, the respect piece that you've talked about several times. Anything sustainable must have consensus and agreement in moving forward. Because uh, even in this day of technological advances, I always uh, remind my young colleagues that it's people who make things happen. Yeah. And so we have to understand people, understand their motivation, present ideas in a way that appeals to them. You know, I used to work with United Way of America. I never felt that I was asking people for money, never. I was giving them a gift. Mm. I was giving them the opportunity to participate in something really worthwhile that will enrich their lives, create their legacy. I'm doing them a favor. I love that. And so with that, number one, so great. your confidence goes up because you're giving the gift. You're not begging for anything. And number two, you know, you really are um, giving people who, many people who are, you're giving people uh, an opportunity to do something meaningful. And I think most people look for that. Yeah. Okay, we haven't talked about your role at the Department of Transportation at all. As of yet, you have a very big job, a lot of responsibility. People, I think, would be very surprised to know how much time and energy the department is focusing on innovation and technology. Yes. Talk a little bit about your biggest challenge. We have three priorities. Number one, safety is always number one. We want people to leave their homes and come back home safely. Number two, as the president has mentioned, we need to address our infrastructure needs for overall international competitive reasons, for the economic vibrancy of our economy and also for the quality of life of our citizens and residents. And then the third part is we have a responsibility to prepare for the future. So we need to be engaging with these new emerging transportation technologies to address legitimate public concerns about safety, security, and privacy without hampering innovation. You know, overregulation has a cost. You know, we can make things very, very safe. We can just tell everybody, get out of your cars, don't use cars, stay in your garage. Obviously, that's unrealistic. So how do we balance these issues about safety, security, and privacy without hampering innovation? Because innovation is part of America's national identity. We are the most creative, most innovative people on Earth. Um, that's why we have cities like Austin that can say, you know, um, keep Austin weird. I mean, if you took this moniker to any other country, they would think that is like so strange. Right. <laughs> but we take pride in our unconventional nature, in nonconformity, in our, you know, in our innovation and in innovative and creative uh, mindset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So driverless cars, drones, drones, all these sorts of things. Driverless cars. We don't call them driverless cars. Oh, I'm sorry. Because, yes, because actually 71% of Americans feel anxiety if you say that you're putting them in self-driving cars. Okay. And if you use the words uh, 
driverless cars, that anxiety actually moves the needle and it goes up to 74%. So what do we call it? Self-driving cars. Self-driving cars. So self-driving cars, automated driving systems, drones, flying taxis, commercial space. These are all transportation modes of the future. Amazing. And so how do we, how do, we do away with the barriers that impede the development of these new technologies, but still pay attention to safety, security, and privacy. And we are very focused on ensuring the public safety, their concerns about security, because um, you know these automated driving systems can be hacked. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a risk. Sure. And then thirdly, of course, many people are concerned about privacy issues, drones flying outside their windows as mm -hmm. such. How far away are we from, you said flying taxis. <laughs> I know, isn't it amazing? Yeah, how far away are we from that becoming a reality? I think a lot will all depend on consumer acceptance, mm -hmm. which is why the department is not top-down command and control. We want to let a thousand flowers bloom, so to speak, while we oversee safety, security, and privacy. But we want the consumer, the private sector, to determine the best technology and let them decide. I've got two final questions. If you would think back over your career, what is the impact that you hope you will have had when you look at all of these, your experience across all of these different sectors and all of these different roles? What's the impact you hope you will have had? I hope that I would have had a positive impact in improving the quality of life for Americans and in whatever um, position I was in. When I was Secretary of Labor, we had the best health and safety record of any previous administration. In transportation, I hope that uh, we continue to keep the traveling public safe, but that we will be also laying the template for the future transportation system that will enrich and improve the quality of life for our people so that they can spend their precious time with their families, with their loved ones, uh, in pursuits that they find most meaningful. One final question. We ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, or a mantra. Maybe it's something that you would tell eight-year-old Elaine Maybe it's something that you tell other young women who come to you and ask you for advice. What would, what would yours be? I smile because uh, I think my usual advice, well, number one, never give up. This country is a wonderful country. There are so many opportunities. So long as you have a dream, you keep on working, you never give up, good things will happen. And I think this is particularly um, of relevance perhaps to a lot of uh, Young, women, young people, young immigrants. When we first came to America, we were so anxious that we would not be able to make it in America. We didn't understand the culture. We didn't speak the language. We didn't know anybody. And our little family of five lived in a small one-bedroom apartment in Queens, New York. We just wondered whether we would ever be able to find our place in America. And there would be times during those early days when we would miss an opportunity of some sort. And literally, it would ruin my week because I would, I would be so panic-stricken that somehow I missed the opportunity and it would never come again and I will never make it in this world. And then what I've learned is that there are so many opportunities that if we miss one opportunity, don't worry. There are many, many more opportunities to come. Again, this is a wonderful country with so many opportunities. And so long as a person doesn't give up, you know, good things will happen. Yeah, that's great. You know, I look back upon those times of great adversity when I was young, and I don't regret them. I think they made me a better person. They made me a better leader because I'm much more understanding of other people's plights. I'm much more empathetic, and I can understand so much more what other people are going through. Because I've been, a new, I've been an outsider. I've been a newcomer to the uh, society. I have worked my way up. 
So I have seen all different layers of society here. And that has given me tremendous insight into how people live and the difficulties and challenges that other people have and how I can, in my positions of responsibility, help to bring a better life for uh, people who are vulnerable, who are outside mainstream America, to help them access opportunities that will improve the lives of themselves and their families. So when I was Secretary of Labor and currently Secretary of Transportation, you know, I initiate a lot of programs to help underserved communities because I understand what they're going through. And I'm here to tell them that they're gonna be okay. Thank you so much. Really you. appreciate you being here and spending the time with me. Thank you. Friends, thanks so much for listening. I'll include links to the Secretary's official bio as well as some photos from our visit today. And remember, if you're enjoying She Said, She Said podcast, be sure to let me know. I'd love an email from you with your feedback and suggestions. You can reach me on the website. The link is in the show notes for this episode, episode 91, or you can email me directly at laura at lauracoxkaplan.net. A big, big thanks again to Secretary Chow for joining us and to our executive producer, Adam Belmar, who was on site with me at the Department of Transportation to record this episode. And most of all, a big thanks to all of you, our friends and our listeners. Thanks so much for being here and for being part of this growing and incredibly inspiring group of women who, like Secretary Chow, are breaking barriers and having a positive impact on others and on the world every single day. The next few weeks are going to be very challenging, so we ask for your indulgence as we try some different approaches to recording these conversations. I have always taken the tact of only recording conversations in person and oftentimes going out on location in order to get to somebody so that we could sit down together. Under the circumstances, that likely will not be possible. So we'll see what we can do and we'll do our best to make sure that the audio you're listening to is as good as we can possibly get it. So thanks again for being with us and for listening. Until next time, stay safe.